welcome to Writing in Faith, a podcast about the Christian and writing life. I'm your host, Daniel Dydek, and this week we're talking about foreshadowing. In spiritual terms, this is often called prophecy, but as we'll see today, it can also be found in God's promises of the Old Testament. For writers, any twist ending can be satisfying as long as it's properly foreshadowed. Fail this and your readers can walk away mad and never want to come back, or at the very least will approach your next book with caution and suspicion. We don't want that, so stay tuned for some insights and tips into helping your readers to walk away eager to read your next book. So again, it's interesting what can happen between scripting this podcast and actually recording it. When I was scripting it, I had a very good idea of what the update was going to be, and in fact, I've been planning this episode and the timing of it specifically for release at the end of this week based on what was supposed to be happening in life. That has changed a little bit, but I'm going to go ahead and stick with it anyway and talk about what is going to happen because it really fits well with the theme of foreshadowing. For those of you who have followed along, some of you I know know me well enough that you kind of know what's been going on. I've given hints kind of here and there, but I've never like really fully told the story of the past couple months, kind of what made this podcast possible more so than I was planning on starting it at some point anyway. But the reason I was able to really kick it off in January is I was actually laid off of my job middle of last November. Now, it was something the company was restructuring and my position was eliminated. Me and a lot of other people, they they got rid of quite a few positions. So I was not the only one. But the cool thing that came out of it was that God really, really set me up and me and my family for a pretty good long while between the severance package they offered, the timing of it with I still got my yearly bonus because it was so late in the year. And then we still had our income tax return to do and things like that. So my wife and I were really, really set. We still are for a good long while. And that really opened up the possibility of digging back into book three, finishing out that first draft getting out to my early readers, getting it ready to publish. I was able to spend, obviously, a lot of time, a couple hours a day, where before I was not able to do that. And then also do a lot of planning with book four and getting it ready and having this time that I've had to begin the first draft and get really deep into it without any sort of real distractions or things like that. And what was supposed to happen was that I was supposed to start a new job on Monday. I was actually going to go in Saturday to do kind of the onboarding paperwork stuff. And then Monday, May 4th was supposed to be the start date. Because of COVID-19, that has now changed. What is going to happen though, and this is where the foreshadowing part comes in. At some point, this job is going to start this or another job. Um, Hopefully this one, because the job is with Cleveland Metro Parks on their trail crew. And what I've probably not made clear is how much I love trails and trail building. Maybe I did, but mountain biking, trails, trail building. I've built my own trails for a long time. If you're following me on Facebook, you've seen that I've started putting trails in my own backyard. And I've been really, might I say, digging into that the past couple of days. I wasn't supposed to start yet. Originally, I was going to start digging on Friday with the way the rain looked and everything like that. And instead, I have worked on it every one of the last three days. I've done a little bit of work on it each day. But when that new job starts, I'm anticipating when I start this job, I'm going to be very, very tired at the end of the day. And probably the last thing I'm going to want to do is come home, work on a podcast or work on my book, etc. My focus is going to have to be the writing still. I need to keep getting books written and getting them out and published. And so in the ideal world, I will come home, have dinner, 
play with my little boy for a little bit. And ideally, I'll be able to sit down then and write 500 words, hit my word count goal daily. I expect, though, I'm anticipating at least the first couple weeks until I get settled into the new job that I'm going to be way too tired. I'm just going to be wiped out from being outdoors, in the dirt, working. And so I'm anticipating I come home, have dinner, play with him, he goes to bed, and I am not too far behind. If that happens, then basically I'm going to be pushing all of my writing to the weekend, which means no real time for this podcast. If I can get the writing done in the evenings, then I'll still be able to do the podcast. I'll record it Thursday night, edit the whole thing on Friday, and then publish it on Saturday and probably script the next one on Saturday. If not, if I don't have the energy to sit down and write at the end of the day, then all of my writings can be done on the weekend and no time for the podcast. So at some point, at the very least, I want it to be, if I can keep doing it, I want to keep it on some sort of regular schedule. I don't want it to just be haphazard. Suddenly you check on a Saturday or Sunday and there's a new episode. So I will probably, when I start, just cut it off entirely for a while. If I get kind of a rhythm going and get two or three weeks in a row of being able to write consistently during the week and have time on the weekends to do podcasting stuff, then I might start up like a bi-weekly episode or something. But again, I want it to be regular. I don't want you guys to be kept guessing. So for now, we are continue to do our weekly episodes until this new job actually finally officially starts. So I have not been unaffected by this pandemic, but my hope is still very firmly in God. And I'm really still enjoying the time that I have. I'm going to get to work on my trail some more, get to keep working on the podcast, keep working on my writing, and I'm just going to keep going with it. Still super excited for everything that's going on. To me, this is life. Things don't always go the way you want to. Things that you thought would happen a certain time don't happen. Things that you had no clue were coming up, come up. You know, we want this ideal of like this nice, flat, predictable plane of life. We just go at this kind of steady state of, you know, maybe happiness, maybe just kind of existence. You know, we see the lows of being sad or the low of, you know, something not happening that you wanted to as some sort of, you know, anomaly or something that's not supposed to happen. And then these highs of something really good coming along and happening to you. Those seem abnormal too. And, you know, I think that's that's a dangerous way to look at life because it's always going to be full of ups and downs. And if we recognize that that is life, that life is not constantly being interrupted by highs and lows, but life is in itself the highs and lows, that has helped me a lot to kind of roll with the punches a little bit better and roll with change and things are going to change. A little bit of a devotional there as well, a little bit of an update. So with that, we're going to jump into today's topics. And we're going to be focusing on two primary passages of scripture today. But before we get into that, I want to do a little bit more foreshadowing of my own, or at least give you some idea or promise of where we're going to be going today and what I'm hoping that you'll take away from all of this. Because the topic in today's devotion is less about a specific or practical application and more about simply just knowing God or knowing another aspect of his nature and character. This, I believe, is still super important to do because Jesus, when he's talking to the religious leaders in John chapter 5, 39 through 40, says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And what he's saying is like, it's not enough just to have a bunch of facts about God without having a personal relationship. And even doing good works isn't enough, right? We looked at that scripture in an earlier episode where people will say at the end times, Lord, Lord, didn't we drive out demons in your name? And Jesus will respond, I never knew you. 
That was from Matthew 7, if you want to go look it back up. So it's important that we know him. And so what we're looking at today was something that had helped me a couple years ago. I've continued to live it out. Again, we talked about this a few episodes ago about my struggle to connect with God during worship. And this was being the problem that when I tried to think about how awesome God was, I struggled for a couple different reasons. And so it was difficult for me to enter worship just by singing, you're so awesome, you're so loving. I mean, those things are true, but I didn't have a personal connection to it. And so it wasn't until I started thinking of God as a writer or a storyteller that I began to understand and truly be able to worship him in spirit and in truth. So that's how I'm approaching today's topic. There's not going to be a now go and live this way at the end. But hopefully you'll further understand what God has done, the power and authority he has, and the plans he has, and how little anything can surprise him. That anything that could happen, he has not already made a way through it, just as I've seen in my own life that we talked about in the update. So to start us off, I'm actually going to start kind of small with an idea that Christians aren't really surprised by, or they shouldn't be. And that is the fact that non-Jews are now part of the promise made to Abraham. For much of the Old Testament and into the New Testament, as we'll see in a bit here, the belief was that you had to be an Israelite, born and descended from Abraham and able to trace your lineage, to be part of the covenant God had made with Abraham. At the very least, if you came to Israel as a foreigner, you would have to adopt all of their customs and laws. That's why we see such surprise in Acts 10 verses 45 through 46, which says, And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. And then in chapter 11 of Acts, those of the circumcision in Judea, when they heard what happened, contended with Peter, accusing him of going to eat with uncircumcised men. So Peter had to explain his vision and call to go, And when he mentioned the Holy Spirit coming upon them and speaking in tongues, those who contended at first were silent, then praised God. Finally, in verse 18, admitting, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. See, under the old covenant, the Israelites were to be separate from everyone else. They were not to reach out to the surrounding nations with the covenant of God. Instead, they were just supposed to be holy or set apart. And if someone came to them already having fulfilled the requirements of the law, primarily the circumcision, then it was okay to interact with them. And so it seemed in Acts that God was suddenly turning everything on its head. It's why Jesus mentions first in Matthew 28, he makes sure the disciples know that All authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. Then he says, go and preach and make disciples of all nations. The idea of going out was counter to the former command to separate. So before Jesus changes the attitudes, he lets them know that he has the authority to change it. So the command did change though, right? In Exodus 23, God is promising the Israelites who had come out of Egypt that he will give them this land of Canaan, this promised land, and that they will drive out the people that live there. And in verse 33, God says about driving them out completely, Do not let them live in your land, or they will cause you to sin against me, because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. No one was to live in Israel who is not part of the covenant, and part of the covenant was the circumcision. That had been in place since Abraham, and so they accorded special focus on that particular law. And as we read through the laws given to Moses, there are many instances where God stipulates that the law is the same for native-born and for the foreigner living among them. Numbers 15, 15, and 16 is one example. The whole point of all of this is that the Israelites and the Israelites alone were God's chosen people, and the only way for anyone else to have a chance was to come to Israel and follow their laws. Even Jesus lived under this covenant, as we see in John 12, starting in verse 20. Some Greeks had come to meet Jesus, went through a couple disciples, and yet it never really says that Jesus met with them. Instead, when Philip tells them that they're looking to meet him, he replies, 
the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Why? Because it was time for the gospel, the good news, of his death and resurrection and salvation from our sins to be preached to the Gentiles. But did you know that God foreshadowed all of this? It seemed a twist, as we've seen, that Jesus, having authority, set the former rule on its head. But let's go way back to Genesis, to the covenant with Abraham. In chapter 17, verse 12, it says this, For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. This we've known and talked about, right? What I want to draw your attention to here is that God already allowed for those not of Abraham's blood. See, it says, or bought with money from a foreigner. Now we fast forward to Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Christ bought us with his blood and made us free from the law. In that way, the law could not punish us. Christ did this by carrying the load and being punished instead of us. Because of the price Christ Jesus paid, the good things that came to Abraham might come to the people who are not Jews. And by putting our trust in Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit he has promised. Jesus knew this was the way it would be and why his time was coming now that the Greeks too were seeking him. He needed to go to the cross, pay the price, so that now all the world was bought from a foreigner by something far more precious than money. Why Judas realized his error and returned the 30 pieces of silver he was paid to betray Jesus. And now we can all be part of Abraham's household under God's original covenant, if we accept the price that was paid. But it gets even better, and this is the passage that really blew me away when someone explained it to me. To close out this portion of today's episode, we're going to read through all of Genesis 15, making some comments as we go, starting in verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. Now, as we continue, remember our previous talk about the fact that the promised land is a type and foreshadowing of our promised land of the kingdom of heaven. So every time we talk about Canaan as the Israelites' promised land, we can generally translate it to our own life in Christ as citizens of God's kingdom. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Or how can we know that we will gain possession of the kingdom? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Already getting some foreshadowing, right? Straight up prophecy here, though. Verse 17 and our critical second passage for today's topic. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. 
On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land. And then he details the land. Again, for us, this is the kingdom of heaven. Now, so what? Seems like some weird, bizarre dream, right? Well, here's the point. In Abram's time, or Abraham, as God later renamed him, in Abraham's time, when two parties wanted to enter into a severe and binding covenant, they would do something like this. Taking several animals, slaughtering them, and cutting them in half. Then the parties to the covenant would walk between the pieces, swearing to each other that whoever broke the covenant, what was done to the animals would be done to them. Slaughter and dismemberment. What is amazing and incredible about this scene, then, is that Abram did not walk between the pieces, even though he was party to the covenant. So by doing this, what God was saying was that no matter who broke the covenant, the punishment for the breach would fall on him. Some thousands of years later, Jesus comes, dies on the cross for our sins, taking our punishment for the continued breach of covenant, just as God promised to Abraham way back in Genesis 15. God knew way back then what humans were. He'd seen them fall from the garden, seen them continue in sin through and beyond the flood, knew we could never keep a covenant with God, knew that the law he would give to Moses wouldn't keep anyone straight, knew in the year 2020 we would not be able to defeat our sinful nature on our own. If Abram had passed through the pieces too, the covenant and promises would have been over long, long ago. The religious leaders in Jesus' day, who studied scripture so diligently, should not have been surprised when he came to do the work God set out for him. But they didn't know him. They knew about him, they had a lot of random facts, but they didn't understand his heart and what he wanted to do, that no one should perish, but all should come to saving knowledge, 2 Peter 3, nine. Hopefully this study, as all our studies, even those with practical applications, helps you to know his heart better and know and come to him. So what can we as writers learn from this? We covered this a bit a couple weeks ago when we talked about promises, progress, and payoff. And a lot of foreshadowing is just making promises, just as God did to Abraham. So for today, we're just going to dive a little bit deeper into just that topic. And as we talked about two weeks ago, the subtlety of your foreshadowing is going to vary with audience age. Younger readers typically do not want massive twist endings. We're talking about middle grade and younger when we say younger readers. If the kid is a decently avid reader, then certainly by their teens, they will probably appreciate and maybe even be looking for those surprise endings. I haven't beat this drum in a while on here, but this is again why it's important to define your audience and write to it. If you write a safe, predictable story, that's going to appeal to a more specific audience. And there's definitely still a market for it even among older readers. Even I often enjoy R.A. Salvatore's Dungeons & Dragons books, and I'm looking forward to picking up his next trilogy on my list later this year. And I have yet to be surprised by any of the conclusions of his books. But what you don't want to do is market your safe, predictable book to people who are looking for new and cerebral experiences. And as you write to the higher age ranges, the bell curve definitely shifts that direction. There's nothing inherently wrong with safe books, as we've just said, and an older reader does not categorically only want twist endings, as we've also just said. But that market definitely gets smaller. So when you're writing your book, the amount and level of foreshadowing will need to change based on your audience. But even with that understanding, there is still a general rule that any major plot twist should have three moments of foreshadowing. Now, as we talked about two weeks ago about the gun and the sword, these three moments should not be identical unless you are writing a predictable book. So depending on how identical the foreshadow is to the final event, you can get away with less. Say, for instance, you need your antagonist to have a particular flaw for your protagonist to exploit in order to win. There's a couple levels of foreshadowing that you can do, working from the most obvious to the least. 
You show the flaw specifically in the antagonist and how it can be exploited. Ideally, unless you're writing a very safe book, you still complicate things a little. You can destroy the Death Star with just one shot, but here's what you have to do to make that shot and it's almost impossible. Secondly, you make a parallel character, either in the present or the past, with a flaw, and assume the antagonist will have it as well. This could be done by setting up the rules of your world that such flaws exist, which is perhaps a more obvious way, or you make mention of the flaw without specifically calling attention to the antagonist. Perhaps, if you're writing a fantasy, your antagonist is of a certain race which you mention at one point. At a far different point, you mention another member of that race with the specific flaw as part of a story unrelated to the antagonist. Depending on how many layers down you bury this, it will become less and less obvious and your twist more likely to surprise. Thirdly, you make mention of the flaw only through some other manifestation. Derek Zoolander can't turn left, but rather than calling out that flaw, we go through the movie only ever seeing him turn right, even when the most expedient thing to do is to turn left. Now that level of foreshadowing it was a little too deep for a comedy movie like that, which is why they didn't do that. But maybe our evil master swordsman suffered an injury during training years and years ago, and now he can't raise his left arm above his head. But rather than saying that straight out, we show some other unrelated scene where he misses placing something on a shelf or has to awkwardly shift the item to his right hand to raise it up high enough. So when our plucky protagonist encounters him in the end, he forces his enemy to defend with his left arm and exploits this limitation. It all comes down to how much our reader has to infer and under how much surface clutter we bury that inference. One particular movement shown during 15 other movements as long as there is some sort of attention drawn to it, might be all you need. And as we mentioned two weeks ago, as long as you make that particular movement and the attention drawn to it important also for the scene that it's in. Remember, if we just hang something out there with no immediate purpose, that's going to be a massive tell for the experienced reader. If you want it to remain hidden, it has to have an immediate use, and it needs to seem like that's its only use. To get really subtle, you'll need to be like God. Because he promised things straight out, but because of our earthbound focus, Jesus was still a twist ending for the religious leaders of the time. This is when you start getting truly cerebral, and I don't think I'm personally near that level yet. But there are ways to hang something out in the open that just because of the way our minds work, the first, second, and maybe even the third conclusions are still not what you're going to do with a prop at the end. And once you write the twist, it is still so obvious that readers are like, oh, of course. If your readers get to the twist, see the foreshadowing, and still think, yeah, that was dumb, then you haven't succeeded. For it to be satisfying, it needs to make sense and be clever, even after the reveal. Like Ocean's Eleven that we mentioned a while back, even after seeing the movie once, it's still fascinating to watch again and again, at least it is for me. Sure, partly because Rusty and Ocean are so charismatic, and the movie is just funny. But even though the suspense is gone, it was just so clever that it's still fun to watch. The one thing we didn't talk about when we talked about Ocean's Eleven, but is still an example of this foreshadowing, is that we mentioned in that previous episode that they had showed the building of the set, but at the time we thought it was just for practice. But look at the promise made way back near the beginning when the team is first meeting and setting up what the job is. Remember, Danny Ocean and Rusty bring them all in and they're briefing them on what the job is going to be. And they lay out this, what seems to be an impossible goal of getting into the vault. And they go through of every step along the way, the security measures in place, things they can't get, things they can't beat, things they can't do. And just getting into the vault is going to be so impossible. And then at the end of the meeting, Saul, one of the team members, asks, so let's suppose we make it through all these obstacles that are impossible. Then we're just supposed to waltz out of there without getting caught. And then what do we do? We zoom in on Danny Ocean, who just says, yeah. And that's exactly what they do. 
hidden in their SWAT garb, they do literally just walk out, even with Benedict and all his security team standing right there. The writers of that film were able to tell you pretty baldly what was going to happen, but hidden so artfully that you still never saw it coming. Part of that, I think, was because they did go into great detail on all the aspects of getting into the vault, so our minds were geared to receive that level of information. It set our expectations that when the time was appropriate, the characters would explain to us exactly how it would go down, that they would be able to get back out. And up until the end, we assumed they had a plan, but we were distracted by all the obstacles and solutions of just getting into the vault that we weren't really spared a moment to think, yeah, but what about getting out? And that's what I call surface clutter, where the details of the moment are so relevant, important, and interesting that you can sneak in all the foreshadowing you want for the end, and your reader will never see it until it finally all comes together. With that, we've reached the end of today's episode. I hope you've enjoyed it and found encouragement and inspiration in it. Join me again next week as we talk about gender studies. Has God set out specific roles for men and women who live in Christ? And for writers, how do we write the other? If we are a male writer, how do we write the female? For a female writer, how do we write the male? All that and more next week and every week to come until I tell you otherwise. Hope to see you again next week. Until then, keep the faith and keep writing.